Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. So today's guest, I did a little stalking of... I was watching you for a while and finally got up the courage to reach out. Um, Marissa Renee Lee is called upon, is a called upon grief advocate, entrepreneur, and, and author of the book, Grief is Love. Deemed the friend we all wish we had in times of need by Elaine Welteroth. Marissa is able to utilize research-based advice and wisdom to help others navigate it the complicated and dark emotions we face when experiencing loss, offering unique insights for women and Black communities. In addition to her work in the grief space, Lee is a former appointee in the Obama White House and CEO of Beacon Advisors, a mission-driven consulting firm primarily focused on racial equity. She is a rabble-rouser of social healing former managing director of My Brother's Keepers Alliance, co-founder of the digital platform Supportal, and founder of The Pink Agenda, a national organization dedicated to raising money for breast cancer, care, research, and awareness. Lee also regularly contributes to Glamour, Vogue, MSNBC, and CNN as an expert for rituals and as an expert for rituals well-being app. She is a Harvard graduate an avid home cook. Marissa lives in upstate New York with her husband, Matt, and their adorable little boy, Bennett, and their dog, Sadie. Welcome, Marissa. Thank you so much for having me. That was such a generous introduction. I really appreciate it. I could really, really use your help. If you haven't had a chance yet to listen to my season five opener, go back and listen to that. But in the event that you don't, I need your support. If you've been listening to me for a while, or even if you just started, you can go to Patreon and put in Dr. Amy Robbins. And there you can find different 
levels in which you can support the podcast financially. At this point, I have no ads. I have no um, sponsors. I am solely self-funding this podcast. And it would really, really help me out if you've gotten something out of this podcast, if you could donate $5, $10, or even $20 a month just to help me out, to help support the podcast. I'm continuing to work to try to get sponsors, to try to get advertisers. But until that happens, I need your help. And there are other ways to support the podcast. In addition to Patreon, you can like the podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast. You can rate and review the podcast. I always love reading your reviews. They're really heartwarming to me. And it's the emotional currency that I get from providing you with this resource. So uh, please, please take a moment to just help me out here. You can also find the links in this um, episode, in the episode notes, as well as on my website at dramyrobbins.com. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins. So this is a beautiful memoir of your grief journey. Tell us all about your mom, your relationship with her, her really untimely death, and what propelled you to write this, this story at this point in your life? Thank you for that. Um, so my mom actually first got sick when I was 13. Um, one day she went from being working mom, you know, PTA president, Sunday school teacher, all of those things to being very physically sick and eventually, you know, became disabled. And it turned out it took us years to figure out what exactly was wrong with her health, but she had multiple sclerosis. And unfortunately, by the time they found the disease, because it went untreated for so long, it had done permanent irreparable damage to her brain. And so growing up, I was a caretaker and just, you know, did everything I could to support my mom and my dad through a really difficult time and also helped take care of my younger sister. And then as I was graduating from college, so fast forward, you know, nine years after my mom first gets sick, she's not feeling well again. No one seems to be able to figure out what's going on. Ultimately ends up seeing a family friend who's a doctor and we learn that she has stage four breast cancer. And so in that moment, like I was there at the doctor's appointment with her, it was like, the floor just opened up beneath my feet. You know, suddenly I knew that my mom was not just sick, but that she was dying and that she was going to die relatively soon. And so I took some time off after college to help mom and dad kind of manage that situation. And then um, I went to work on Wall Street. I started a breast cancer nonprofit because I needed to do something to feel like I was contributing to this disease that was ultimately going to kill my mom. And then at the very end of her life, you know, when we decided it no longer made sense for her to seek treatment. I spent almost all of my time with her, like helping to prepare her, helping to prepare myself, going through sort of the practical preparations around death and dying. And it was, it was really hard, but I believed that because I was honest about what was happening and because I was so prepared, that was going to make it all easier when she actually did die. And of course, I was completely wrong. Like she died and it was like getting run over by a truck. And because I had prepared, I was very hard on myself the months following my mom's death. You know, 
I was like, there must be something wrong with me. Like, this is, this is crazy. Like, why do I still feel so much pain? Eventually I decided, you know, I kind of just hit a wall and realized, you know what, there isn't anything wrong with me. Like where I think the problem actually sits is in how we talk about and treat grief and loss in our society. And so at this point, it was August of 2008. I wrote in my journal at the time, you know, I'm going to write a book about grief that's going to tell the truth about what grief really is and is not going to be sad and depressing. And it's going to be a New York Times bestseller. So far, I think I've checked two out of those three boxes. Um, but the thing that finally pushed me to having to write the book was actually a pregnancy loss my husband and I experienced in 2019. Um, we were at the end of, or at least what we thought was the end of our infertility, you know, IVF, egg donor, et cetera, challenges. Mm -hmm. And this was our final attempt at getting pregnant. We were three years in and we really believed that this was our baby and it was going to work out and it was going to be great. And then we were very briefly pregnant and not. Um, and it was late 2019. And right after it happened, everyone found themselves grieving because we were all thrown into the global pandemic. And suddenly I was both like, you know, physically sick from the actual pregnancy loss, super depressed, riddled with anxiety, you know, unclear about the path forward to parenthood. And all I wanted was my mom. And there were no distractions to reach for during that time. And so I started writing. And one thing led to another. And an article that I wrote for Glamour in May of 2020 ended up going viral. And that led to Grief is Love, the book we're talking about today. What do you think it was about the pregnancy loss? that really pushed you into looking at your grief from your mom that, that had sort of laid dormant. I mean, it sounds like in the book you talk about, like it was definitely there. Yeah. But there was, yeah. I mean, but it in, wasn't in, as big of a thing. Yeah. You know, I think, I think it's a few things. Um, you know, my mom was during her life, like a great comfort to a lot of people, you know, not just me, but my friends, other family members, you know, cousins, etc. And I, I wanted that comfort and like being in a place where you've lost the thing that you wanted the most that you really believed was going to work out. And then also having to recognize that like, you can't even comfort yourself in the ways that you want to because of, you know, both the pandemic and my mom being gone, like, it was just so miserable. And in that moment, I realized, like, I, I don't think we ever get over these things that happen to us that are transformational, these big, big losses in life, you know, parents, best friends, siblings, children, etc. And I don't think we're supposed to, I think instead, what we have to figure out is what it looks like to live without your person. And like, how do you do that in a way that feels comfortable, that makes you happy, that allows you to still have some connection to that person. Like that's what I became obsessed with because, you know, I, I couldn't get my mom back, obviously. Um, but were there other ways of living and of being that would get me as close as possible? Like that, that was just like a question that plagued me because I was in so much pain. Like I was so miserable, sick, unhappy, anxious. Like it was, it was just such an awful period and all I wanted was this woman who at that point had been dead for 11 years. 
How has that yearning softened as you've, as you've really moved through the grief? Or has it, has it softened? Yeah, I would say, I would say it has, um, primarily because I try to do my best to do the things that I recommend in grief is love. Like I give myself permission to grieve, no matter that it's been now 15 years and, and I have the baby that, you know, I was working so hard for back then, you know, like, even though I have those, like, I still get hit with it sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I have just decided to be okay with that. Like, I don't, I don't feel like I owe anyone else an explanation for how I feel for being sad around Mother's Day last year, for instance, when it was my first Mother's Day as a mom. Mm. And I was super grateful for that, obviously, but I also can still miss my own mom. And that's Mm -hmm. okay. Um, So I spend a lot of time like really making sure that I'm being intentional about how I approach and treat myself when I'm grieving or struggling. I also got better over time at, and I I mentioned this, excuse me, in the book as well, like asking myself when I'm feeling like I miss my mom, like, what is it that I'm looking for? Mm-hmm. Am I looking for comfort? Great question. Am I looking for, you know, because when you can answer that question, it, it helps you better identify other ways to support yourself in the absence of that person you love. So like, if it's comfort, um, can I like talk to my husband instead or a best friend? If it's encouragement, I have an amazing friend and mentor, um, uh, writer and speaker. Her name is Reshma Sajani. And she is like the ultimate cheerleader. Like everything that I think I am deserving of professionally, she has plans that are like 10 times as big. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, maybe I'll text her instead. If it's, I just actually feel exhausted and I wish that I had my mom to whine and complain to and make me feel better about how tired I am from life as an adult. I'll take a nap. Like, you know what, like, so Mm -hmm. trying really hard to be intentional about like, what is it that you're actually seeking? Um, And how can you do that for yourself, assuming, you know, the person that you love is no longer here to do those things for you? Well, and what I loved about the book was that you each chapter is like a different gift you should be giving to yourself in terms of when you're grieving, right? So you talk about permission, surrender, feel ask, which I want to circle back to, because I think it's important, grace, intimacy, care, legacy, and love. So let's circle back to ask, because I think that this is, this is something oftentimes when someone's grieving as the non griever, people will likely say, what can I do for you? Or, you know, what do you tell me? Just tell me what you need. Right. And I've heard many times that there's this like push pull between, well, I shouldn't have to tell you. Yes. You know, just do something. But then also, where do we, when we need something, ask for it? Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Yeah, it is a push-pull. So a few things. In, in pretty much every excuse me, interview I've done on grief, I always get the question, like, what do I do when this happens to someone I care about? Um, you know, what do I say? I feel like I'm going to say the wrong thing and I don't want to offend somebody, et cetera, et cetera. My response is always like, what you do is more important than what you say. So focus on taking some sort of action. Like if someone's parent just died, if someone just had like a horrible pregnancy loss, you know, whatever it is, do something for them that is either rooted in active practical support, like a meal or walking their dog or watching their kid or something that is rooted in your relationship with the person. So like not every grief gift has to be flowers or a copy of grief is love, for instance, <laughs> one of my best friends. But that would make a great what, grief gift. Yes, it does make a great <laughs> grief gift. But one of my best friends, um, when I, uh, when I lost pregnancy in 2019, she sent me a care package from a gourmet cheese store in New York city that she knew that I loved and so instead of focusing on the horrible thing that had just happened, it was like, you know, I know people are going to be stopping by to see you. I know that you like snacks. I know that you love this store. And so I'm going to send you something that like reminds you of who you are outside of this current experience. Mm. Now, when it, now on the flip side, though, when it comes to asking for help, if we, if we view grief the way that myself and the researchers who supported my book view it as like a lifelong process of learning to live in the midst of, you know, significant loss, then you're going to need people to support you and help you and show up for you multiple times over the course of your life as you move in and out of grief, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think some of that help oftentimes needs to be paid professional help, you know, like therapy, counseling, that kind of thing. I also think we all need to get more comfortable at asking like friends and family to help us and support us as we're going through something hard. I have struggled with this. I, th I think a lot of people struggle with this for, for two reasons. One, the one you mentioned, which is, I just want you to know what to do. And that's fine, especially early on. Just show up. Don't ask people how you can help them. Just take that action. But when it comes to the ongoing support, grievers need to feel like it is okay and acceptable and normal to ask for friends to you know, maybe meet them for lunch on their mom's birthday or help them figure out their holiday plans if mm -hmm. Christmas was dad's big holiday um, or, you know, ask someone to help you a little bit as you're trying to find a therapist to help counsel you through this difficult time. Um, I, think, I think when I struggle to ask for help, what I try to do is kind of flip it around in my brain like, how do I feel when I'm able to really help someone who I love during a difficult time? Like, I feel good. Like, I feel useful. I feel like mm -hmm. I made a contribution. Like, there's nothing wrong with asking for help from someone else because you may give, be giving them something that they need too. Um, and I just, I think that, I think that healing happens largely in community. And so being prepared to ask for and to, to ask for help and also to like support people when they're grieving is just critically important. 
Well, and, and I think what you said, like also think of things that, you know, aren't fitting of the situation, perhaps, yeah, right? Like it's a death thing. Someone, um, and I wasn't even honestly that super close friends with this person, but someone sent me a pair of pink Prada shoes when my mom died. And it was like, obviously the most random thing, but my mother loved pink. I love pink. Um, you know, I had the breast cancer charity, et cetera. It was like so gorgeous and so special. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I think do something that feels, that feels lovely and comforting, but is also just, like I said, rooted in who this person is outside of this horrible thing that has happened to them. Well, and how, how seen you must've felt in that. Exactly. With that gift, exactly. right? Like, exactly. wow, this person knew my mom. They knew me. They knew my love of like this shared love yes. of this. And, um, and it doesn't always have to be a pair of Prada shoes. But no, Lord Jesus. <laughs> but it is such a special thing. And I'm sure you'll always look at those and remember the the kindness that went into oh, yes. and the thoughtfulness that went into that. Exactly. Exactly. Another friend, and I'll stop after this, but I've gotten very fortunate with super supportive friends. Um, another friend a couple months after, excuse me, our pregnancy loss, you know, she knew that Christmas was going to be hard for me that year. And usually I am an over-the-top Christmas person. And so she sent me these like sparkly, like black Santa Claus earrings um, that she thought I would love, you know. So it's like, just be be fun in your support. Like it doesn't just have to be heavy and sad all the time. Like maybe mm -hmm. you can send someone something that makes them smile when they have it in a while. What is it like as a black woman in America grieving? Because this seemed multi-layered in a way that likely grief for me is not. And you brought up a lot of things I hadn't even thought about. Um, and how do you feel like that impacted your grieving process? Yeah. And so one thing that's really important for me to be clear about, like, I think that grief, especially in the beginning, is miserable and hard and heavy and challenging and over it makes everything that is hard in life harder you know whether we're talking about mental health or the black maternal health crisis and you know the likelihood of the increased risk of like you know dying in childbirth or, or your child not making it through etc um that we've seen reported with black women um or something like grief and the reason is the people who are called to grieve the most, which in this country, you could point to any sort of more marginalized community. So not just black, but black, poor, LGBTQ, et cetera. They also tend to be the people who are the most disconnected from the resources that can facilitate healing, like um, access to affordable mental health support even access to affordable like physical health support and like ease of making and getting like doctor's appointments and things like that. Cause we know that grief has like a very real impact on not just our minds, but also our physical bodies and people who grieve are more likely to get sick. Things like paid time off from work, paid childcare, et cetera. I also think that culturally the narrative around black women and grief is very like grin and bear it and like black women can handle 
anything. Like we are supposed to be strong. That is how everyone sees us. And I'm not even just talking about the ways in which like white America tends to generalize and see black women, but I'm also talking about within our own communities and culture. It's it's mm-hmm. not it's not just like a black versus white thing. It's also an internal black thing. Excuse me. And so I think as a result of that, and as a result of the inherited grief and trauma that so many of us carry, it's always going to make a grief event a bit harder to deal with. And, you know, even in my case where, relatively speaking, I am, I'm incredibly privileged, you know, like, yes, I'm a Black woman. Yes, like, you know, I grew up in a household where there wasn't much money, but I went to Harvard. I worked on Wall Street. I worked for President Obama. Like, I've had all of these very, very, very privileged and elite experiences. And yet, you know, when my mom died, I did not feel comfortable conveying how much pain I was in because I worried about how that would reflect on me in the workplace, how it would reflect on me some of my interpersonal relationships, which were mostly with white people, not people of color. Um, And I recognized at that time that like, even though I had achieved all of these different things at that point, you know, I was still so early in my career and first generation, like everything in my family. And so if I needed to really fall apart or take six months off from work or, you know, do any of these things that people often need when they go through a traumatic loss, like I couldn't afford to do any of that. And so instead, I just committed to keeping it together and not really, not really fully or effectively processing the grief. And so my thing to people out there who feel like there isn't room for their grief in this society, like you have to make room for it. Like you are worthy of whatever your grief requires. And I think for those of us who are more privileged, it's a question of, you know, how are we using our privilege to ensure that everyone has access to the things that they need to heal in this country. And what do you feel like some of those things are, especially with everything that's happened in the past two years, where it seems like the chasm is even greater in some ways that, I mean, the awareness is maybe more present, but the chasm feels greater. Yeah, no, I think the chasm feels greater because People are more aware. And then obviously, as I'm sure you know, so many of these issues and challenges have been exacerbated by the pandemic, right? And so I think I think if you are in a position of power and privilege, doing what you can inside your own businesses, you know, inside your company to ensure that policies are in place that create room for everyone to grieve, no matter, you know, sort of what their status level is within the organization. I also think it should be a policy issue for more of us. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that there's no guaranteed bereavement leave in this country. And, you know, a lot of companies only give people two to three days. Well, I mean, when they're only given people like six weeks for maternity leave. Yeah. It's right. It's so backwards. It's disgusting. And so I think I think all of us advocating not just for ourselves, but for each other is a big part of it. Um, You know, unfortunately, because of the way capitalism works, there isn't much value placed on grief, on healing or on care in general, you know, like you said, six weeks of maternity leave, like that's insane. I mean, we, we adopted our child and 
I, it was a very sudden adoption. So I worked a bit throughout the entire thing, but there was no way I could have been in an office from eight to six or whatever, six weeks after he showed up and I didn't even give birth. Like, Mm -hmm. so I cannot imagine given what women's bodies go through to create life and bring it into the world, being back at work in six weeks. Like that's, that's completely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Well, and I wanted to revisit what you were talking about earlier, because I wanted to say this before, but I think what's so, um, what's so useful about what you offer here is we're talking about grief in the face of death, but I think grief shows up in so many different ways in people's lives. And, and any of these, um, they were chapters in the book, but any of these, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh my God, this keeps happening to me. Themes. Uh, Themes. Thank you. Is that what you said? Themes. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of like how to treat yourself. Um, can really apply not just for death, but for so many challenges we face in our lives. Yes, yes. And they don't 100%. require money. They don't no. require access. They, they do require, require time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, time and like a commitment to doing them. And I'll say, you know, in the book, I define grief as the repeated experience of learning to live in the midst of a significant loss. And I did not use the word death in that definition because I think we grieve whenever there is a future that we believe that we can believe in, you know, like, like there, like we have a certain degree of certainty around the future, whether it's with regard to our children or our marriage or our health or our careers, whenever that is taken away, I think we are called to grieve. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's serious illness, that's divorce. That's, um, you know, maybe you're dealing with some health challenges with a child that you didn't expect. Like, I think all of those moments are grief moments. It's not just about death. And I hope that, and I think I've kept the book and the research in the book general enough so that if you're dealing with one of those other forms of loss, you can still get something out of grief as love. So I want to pull two quotes that I found in the book. And I also want to talk, well, let me start with this. I wanted to talk about your friendship with your roommate from college, Uh um, because this was such a poignant story and resonated with me. Um, I think because, well, let's tell the story and then, and then we can talk a little about it. So roommate from college, who um, I will add is still one of my best friends to this day. Um, She and I were close from the time we were 18, like families got along really well. So we even did some holidays together with parents and grandparents, things like that. Um, She was one of my best friends in the whole world. And when my mom died, she didn't come to her funeral because she had a soccer game. And to give context, My roommate, Alicia, was playing on the Irish women's national team. This was not like a pickup game, you know, at the local park or something like this was technically her job at the time. And I remember they had a game in Portugal is what it was. And I was I was blind with rage. And I basically said, you know, if if you can't prioritize me right now, then like I'm, I'm not friends with you anymore, essentially, which I will also add. We are two of. 12 roommates that all lived together during college. And so 
you know, me saying like, I cut you off. I'm not your friend anymore. Also made things awkward for pretty much everybody. Um, Alicia insisted on finding her way back in. And she ultimately explained to me that her feeling was, you know, I was going to be so supported at the funeral. Like of those 12 roommates, I think all but two others weren't there. Everybody else was there. My entire banking department shut down. Friends from high school, friends from college. Like I was surrounded by like an overwhelming amount of love and support, even though we were all in our early 20s and had no idea what we were doing. So it was mostly eating cookies and drinking wine, um, which was exactly Mm -hmm. what I needed. And, And she felt like when she needed to show up was after everybody else went away. You know, she's like, I know that at some point the support is going to dwindle down. And like, that's, that's when she believed it would be more important for her to be present for me. And of course, like years later, I, I came to see her logic, but in the meantime, I made things very hard for her. She apologized multiple times. I mean, she sent her boyfriend uh, to apologize and bring gifts and stuff on her behalf. She sent her parents to my mother's funeral and wake, but ultimately it was her forcing her way back into my life by jumping on a train with me when I was headed to my dad's house to help clean out my mom's stuff one weekend. And there is something, and Brian Stevenson, big civil rights um, advocate, says that it is really hard to hate people when you are proximate to them. Like hatred dies in proximity. And something about actually being together that broke me down and her apologies and her commitment. And we remain close to this day. And now I see that I was, I wasn't really blind with rage. I was blind with grief. And Mm. I recognized in her like ongoing love and support and apologies that grief requires grace. You know, other people are going to make mistakes when they are trying to support you. You are going to make mistakes when you think that you're further along with your grief and maybe can take on more than you actually can. And then you end up flaking on someone at the last minute because you're still having a hard time or you are going to need to extend grace to yourself when you're still moving through certain elements of this grief and you just want it to be over. And so for me, that chapter on grace was just like such an important chapter in the book. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that oftentimes there seems to be so much that comes up around when someone dies in terms of like how the the supporter responds. You know, this is like what we were talking about earlier. And I think questions of like, where do I put myself? Where do I belong? How much should I be involved? How little should I be involved? I mean, this seems a little bit clear cut, but, but her point makes sense, you know, and and so did yours. Like, I understand how you wanted her there, but how her showing up for the long run was probably way more than, than 95% or 99% of everybody else there. And so how can we maybe reframe some of these situations that even at the time are so hurtful, but if someone can be there for us, and show and really show up, then maybe that's really the true expression of their love. For like us. now looking back, I see it all so clearly and truly didn't do anything wrong. It was just where I was in my grief at the time. I wanted what I wanted and nothing else mattered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm able to see that now, you know, and, and it's okay. I want to tell people who are listening, who are dealing with grief, like it's okay to have those moments. Like it's okay to handle this 
situation imperfectly because it's an imperfect, horrible set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. So I just, I always want to encourage people just do the best you can and be, be honest about what you need and expect from people to the extent that you're able to, because I do think that that makes a big difference because I don't even know if I ever said to her, like, this is where I really want you to show up for me, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a few of the quotes I pulled out, <clears throat> so this was one from your mom, I believe. Um, she said to you, answer the phone for your friends. Yeah. And you, you, you said, I never answer the phone. Everyone close to me knows that. But what I interpreted her words to mean was show your people you love them by showing up. For yes. Them. Yes, that is exactly how I feel. Like I'm a horrible phone answerer, but like all my people know if you need something, you just have to tell me and like I'll take care of it. Like I'll do anything for you. Um, but I'm bad at answering the phone. So you should probably text. Well, and and it's such like a poignant, especially I don't know why there was something about answering the phone that struck me, maybe because of the maybe because of the fact that we don't pick up the phone. It's old and, school too, yeah, right? It's old school. I love a throwback. Um, that we don't like spend enough time picking up the phone, talking to each other, having those more, I want to say more genuine connections, but a little bit deeper of a connection to someone. And I really, I really appreciate that sentiment. And then you also said, if I never let, if I never let you inconvenience me, then we aren't really friends. We are just people who hang out and drink together. This was a friend of yours as well who said this. Yes. Yes. It was one of those things, you know, you have, you have your perception of like what friendship is and what it should look like from childhood. Um, And, you know, it is mostly just about spending time with people when you're a kid. And at this point I was a freshman in college. And so this was, you know, a relatively new friend. And one of my, uh, one of our mutual friends had a friend who was really struggling at school about two hours away. And she wanted to go visit this friend and I offered to go with her, but we didn't have a way to get there. And he offered to drive us and bring us back. And we're like, you know, you're just going to like drive us for two hours to see someone who you don't even know, wait for us. And then you're going to drive us back here. Like we were like, why would you do that? Like, it just seems like not a very fun thing for you to do. And when he said that, you know, if I never let you inconvenience me, then like, what are we besides people who just know hang out and like have drinks together I was like oh wow like it was one of those like just lines that stuck with me you know it's been gosh it's been over 20 years now since he said that and it's always for me been the marker of true friendship like Mm -hmm. yes yes you coming to my birthday party or coming to my house for dinner some night or whatever like yes those things matter and I enjoy those things but fundamentally I think true friendship is a level beyond that you know, where I want you to feel comfortable asking me for like a proper favor and vice versa. Like that's like, that's how I want us to be in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is how oftentimes we are with our family. Yes. Yes. But we don't do it with our friends. Yeah. I, I, I was, when I read it, I was like, how many people in my life have let me have, have, allowed me to be inconvenienced by them. Like it really yeah. made me think like, huh. Yeah, we are so our culture is all about like I I I've got this. Mm-hmm. You know, not like independent American spirit. But fundamentally I don't actually think we do anything that really matters in life by ourselves. 
So whether it's family or friends or help that you hire, like, you know, I, I just, I, I just don't think we do. And mm. so I think it's really good for all of us to be prepared to both inconvenience someone else and to be inconvenienced by someone else who we love. How do, how do you see joy in the face of grief? So it was really important to me to have a chapter on joy. My mom was a really joyful person. I mean, she literally died laughing and mm. I, I love joy. I love fun. I like to laugh. I like to have a good time. I'm sort of known for some of those things, but when it comes to joy and grief, I think there's a couple things that are really important to consider. So first of all, you know, just because you are having a moment of joy and like having a laugh, having a good time with your friends, like I never want grievers to feel like when they have those moments, that means that they're like doing grief wrong or like to feel bad or guilty about having moments of joy. Um, I think we're still here and we should have moments of joy and laughter and fun and levity. Um, I also think that joy is something that can't be forced or faked. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, people pushing you to turn your lemons into lemonade or, you know, telling you that you should be happy because they're in a better place or, you know, any of those platitudes, I don't think any of that works. Um, I think that in order for joy to like be real and have a positive impact on you, it needs to be authentic. And I think we get at authentic joy by being honest about our pain. And sometimes you just have to, honestly, sometimes you just have to like sit in shit for a while mm -hmm. and like really be present and real about what you're experiencing in order to have space to open yourself up to joy. And so I wanna encourage people to not, to not force it, um, but also to be honest enough about your experience of grief that there is room for joy to enter into the equation. And let's end with, well, we're not going to end just yet because I do have a question for you after this, but the title of your book is Grief is Love. And you say love doesn't die. And that is why we grieve. You don't get over love. Loving someone and being loved in return leaves an indelible imprint on your brain. It cannot be erased because love can't be taken away, can't be taken back, even if our person is no longer with us in this world. Death forces us to continually recalibrate our expectations around love. Yes. <laughs> That's it's so it. Funny. It's so funny. There are times when people realize, I'm like, oh, I remember where I was when I wrote that. Like, I remember like waking up and being like, oh, okay, I have something. Um, and so much of the end of the book, which includes that piece on love, is connected to the very sudden arrival of our son. You know, I felt like when we adopted Bennett, you know, all of a sudden I had this completely new understanding for life, for love, like just how much my mother loved me. I had this new identity as a mother and suddenly I just felt like I had a better understanding for all of this grief stuff, honestly. And I woke up one day and I realized like, oh, this is why this is why we don't get over it. Like, like that, that love 
it, it imprints on us. Mm-hmm. And so then I had to go to the researcher that I was working with and say, like, is this true or is this just the way that I feel? Um, and thankfully, she said, actually, it is true. You know, here's the research and data to back it up. It's not it's not just a Marissa thing. Um, <laughs> and that was how that was basically how we ended the book with this theory that's known as the continuing bonds theory, which is one of the leading theories in the space around grief and loss and healing. And it states that, you know, the healthiest way for those of us who've experienced a significant loss to live with that loss is by finding our own way to continue our relationship with the deceased. You know, that love doesn't leave. And so like, what do you do with all of these feelings? And then I also had to reconcile this idea that, okay, if grief is love, then why is it also so painful? It's so painful because love is both action and feeling. Like I can still feel the love that I have for my mother and the love that my mother has for me, but she's not here to act on it. And that is really sad. You know, I had Mm -hmm. 25 years of this woman very actively and proactively loving me in a million different ways all of the time. And all of that is now gone mm-hmm. and that hurts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's how I have come to think of grief in a way that I, I hope is comforting for others and also just provides a framework for like why we feel the way we feel when we lose someone who we love. Have you had any signs or synchronicities since your mom's death? Um, Yes. So you have read Grief is Love. I don't know if you have seen um, the cover and I can't, I can't read your copy right now, but when there were discussions around the design of the cover for the book, I gave my editor like, you know, I like bright, I like pink, you know, I want it to feel very warm and alive and not a depressing book about grief. And the cover that they came back with, it's the most perfect thing for my mom ever. Like in addition to it capturing my personality, it also has her favorite flowers, which I'd never shared with anyone on the team, Um, but lilies were her thing. And for, gosh, for the first like 10 years after she died, I hated flowers. I didn't want to be anywhere near flowers, especially if they happened to be lilies. And that's what ended up on the cover of the book. Um, Mm. pure coincidence or what, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it. But when I saw this book cover, I was like, wow, that is, we call, we say like, that's some mom shit. Like she like definitely got involved there. Wow. And what a perfect place for it. I mean, right. Like if if she was going to show up, she showed up where she should. Yep. Supporting you and, and loving you still. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Marissa, thank you so much for this super insightful conversation. I know it's going to help so many. Where can people find your work if they're interested? Um, You can find me. I'm Marissa Renee Lee on all social channels. Um, And you can also head to my uh, website, MarissaReneeLee.com and sign up for my infrequent but always useful. (laughs) You sound like me. Well, like, I'm just going to be honest about it. It's right. not a monthly thing. It's uh, <laughs> when there's time and there's something useful to share. Thanks. Right. I try Mondays. Sometimes it's Tuesdays. 
But you, you get it eventually. You get it eventually. Yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. thank you. Thank you so, so much for this today and for thank our chat you. before. It was super fun. And um, I'm excited to share this with, with the world. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Amy. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between.